you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Fast Money starts right now. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najari and Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Tonight on Fast, Bitcoin futures are here. The cryptocurrency futures surging as it makes its official debut on Wall Street. Want to get in on the fun? We are breaking down how to make your first Bitcoin futures trade. And in honor of the historic event, it is Bitcoin Week here on Fast Money, where some of the biggest crypto ballers in this space will be joining us all week long, starting with tonight. They call him the Bitcoin Jesus, one of the original prophets of Bitcoin. Roger Ver bought Bitcoin at a buck. He will tell us where he sees a cryptocurrency going next in an exclusive interview from the beach. Why? Well, because he can. <laughs> and our Bitcoin bug is back. Check out the far left corner of your screen. If you've got crypto fever, do not worry. We'll be tracking the price via Coinbase for the entire show. But first, we start off with Judgment Day for the Fed. What could be the final rate hike for the Fed chair? Janet Yellen, after four years at the helm, just stays away. And all signs point to a go. Under her reign, the S&P 500 is up a whopping 50%, closing at a fresh record high, along with the Dow today. Now, rate hikes have been the source of volatility for the market. So will this mean meeting proved different and do you just keep buying guy I think you just keep buying I mean could this uh, meeting proved to be different I don't see how I think it would be more volatile if they did nothing quite frankly I think as long as they stay the course do what they said they're going to do all along I think the market's fine and we've talked about this Pete brings it up I brought it up as well I mean the VIX was 11 and a half a week or so ago it's 930 now so if the market was concerned about it it would be manifesting itself in a higher VIX you're not seeing it and as we've said many, many times, stay the course. I mean, it seems like the market's volatile. Quite frankly, it's not all that volatile. Yeah, what do you yeah, think? Listen, I mean, I think the Fed's did a very good job of preparing the ground for investors. And I agree with Guy. You would have seen more weakness there. And then when you look at the, what's going on with the, with the yield curve, you know, Tony Dwyer will tell you that you don't have to worry about it here. It's not until multiple rate hikes happen and the curve actually inverts before you're even going to have some weakness in equity. So I, as long as the Fed continues this message that we're going to be slow and steady and we're going to be with the economy, then I think they're okay. We still have a lot of a lot of room to go before people start saying, you know what, three percent ten year, three and a half percent ten year. Now I have some options. Once we get there, I'll be worried. But until then, I think you still buy. I mean, all glimpses from all Fed speak that we've heard probably for the past two or three months is that inflation is a bit of a mystery right. as to why it's not picking up. It isn't that Goldilocks for the stock market here. We've yeah. got the fundamentals going, and we've got no whiffs of inflation. And the fund fundamentals are strong. And you said slow, steady. I'd even throw in transparency. I mean, the one thing the Fed has been has been very, very transparent, and that's part of the reason I think it's been as orderly as it's been. It's probably mm -hmm. why the volatility, and Dan and I are always looking at this thing. We're always trying to figure this thing out. Why is it so low? Well, it's so low because, quite frankly, you look around the market, what kind of movements have we really had in the market over the last month, two months, three months even? No sharp moves. Everybody's expecting some sort of a pullback, looking for that 3%, the 5%, whatever it might be, and yet it's been an orderly move to the upside, and it seems like a record close every single day like we had today. 
Yeah, I would just say what's different this time about this tightening cycle is when you think about how, it, you know, it's how long it's taken us to get off of that zero interest bound. It's been years now when you think about it. So here we are at one and a quarter percent in the Fed funds rate. When you look at past up cycles in equities, we saw a pretty dramatic increase, you know, off of the lows from 2003 when the Fed funds went, got cut in half from the prior highs during the dot-com cup. You know, it went, it, it went up back above 5%. The difference now is we have global central banks who are this low. We have $10 trillion in sovereign debt that still has negative yields. And so this experiment is going to be very different. So we can all guess about the transparency and how the, you know, the turnover to Powell is going to be and everything like that. You think there's going to be volatility then? Well, I'm just saying at some point it may take some other sort of event where people are going to say, okay, this is a transition here and it's a new experiment and who knows. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, this has been a very gradual walk up off and, of zero interest. And if you use Japan as your, as your, uh, template for this, right? Their yields stay low, stayed very low for a long period of time after the kind of debt bust that they had, which is exactly what we had in 2007. So, you know, I would not expect a rapid rise in rates like we did. That doesn't mean that the stock market can't go up anymore. Well, I so, mean, BK, though, in Japan, did stock market go up when yields stayed really low for a long time? No, it did not. No, it didn't. Yeah. But different dynamic here because people are conditioned to be buying into equities. All right. So let's say there's there's not much volatility within the markets. Is there a continuation of the rotation that we have seen in recent weeks? Well, I think you've seen the rotation sort of waning. I mean, a lot of these tech names have come back. They haven't come back all the way, but they've come back. I think some of these retail names still work on the trading side of things. You know, we flagged Nordstrom's now for a while after earnings. That stock's done extraordinarily well. Pete pitched Target. We talked about Target on July 13th. I mean, very quietly, that stock is probably up 15% or so. Got some breaking news here on Comcast, dropping its bid for Fox assets. Let's get to Julia Borson for all the details. Julia. Melissa, Comcast says it is no longer interested in buying 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets. This comes ahead of expectations that Fox's other suitor, Disney, could announce a deal to buy those entertainment assets from Fox as early as this week. Comcast saying, quote, when a set of assets like 21st Century Foxes become available, it's our responsibility to evaluate if there is a strategic fit that could benefit our company and our shareholders. That's what we tried to do, and we are no longer engaged in the review of those assets. We never got the level of engagement needed to make a definitive offer. We have a terrific company with a strong portfolio of businesses and will continue to focus on driving growth, innovating, creating great content, and providing excellent experiences for our customers. While Comcast is out of those negotiations, we do hear that Disney is still in talks with Fox for those assets, and we are awaiting any more news um, from them. And we'll see if we get an announcement this week. Melissa? All right, Julia, thank you. Julie Borson in Los Angeles for us. Uh, worth uh, noting that Comcast shares in the after-hour session on this news up by almost 1%. What does that say uh, in terms of shareholders' right. willingness to say, you know what, let's do a big deal? I never this. felt as if Comcast actually was the right buyer of these assets. And I did think, and I still think, that Disney, and that's why I think that stock for Disney has actually been slowly moving higher and higher and higher. We even saw that move today over 106. I mean, the strategic fit is what was brought up. Well, it's a strategic fit does work, I think, very, very well with Disney. Did it work for Comcast? I'm not so sure. I own both stocks. And I own Comcast because I felt like they probably would be the loser in terms of the bidding war. Mm -hmm. And because of that, once they get pulled, that stock's going to go higher. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be an opportunity for me to take off some of that Comcast. And the reason I say that is, who are they going to buy next? And what are the circumstances? And what is the best fit for Comcast right now in terms of what their portfolio looks like? Yeah. 
Guy, you've always made the case that this deal or Disney Fox deal is about who. I think it still is. So that ice is Comcast out, basically. And ice yeah. is the math. They'll still, I believe, own have 30 percent ownership. Yeah. But I, I think now Disney will have. If I'm, my math might be off. I think Disney probably has 60 percent or so if this deal were to go through. So what does it mean for Comcast? I, I think Comcast does rally off the back of this in a relief rally. But I also think valuation-wise, Comcast is not a cheap stock. I mean, they're cheaper companies out there. As a matter of fact, on valuation, Disney's actually cheaper than Comcast. So, so self, would you rather Disney I, I Comcast? Didn't, I didn't play. I didn't self. Sounds like I'm, I'm leading you down that path. Uh, Go down that path. You know who it is. You know who it is. Say oh, it. Disney. Disney or yes. Disney. Disney. Yeah, I think Comcast right. is going to see it bounce in the stock. It's too expensive Man. at these levels. Uh, interesting article in the journal over the weekend. Nothing new, but it was talking about all this potential consolidation in the media space and what it means for Netflix. And so, you know, the takeaway there is that, yeah, you're having all these guys trying to jockey these assets and put them together, that sort of thing. But they did mention that, you know, Apple and Amazon are coming. Apple spent a billion dollars on original content last year. Uh, Amazon spent five and a half billion. Those are no are only going up. So at the end of the day, I think you have to keep an eye on Netflix. And maybe they do become a, an acquisition target for a Comcast. An acquisition sure. target mm, of Comcast. Sure. Especially Comcast if you're going well, to think about his thing with the Hulu, two-thirds owned by the Disney Fox assets. Maybe that's something that they think about. I, I actually like Pete's play on this, where you don't get sucked into the, into Comcast tomorrow. You use this as the strength to sell and to take some profits off the tables. All right. For more on, on the markets, let's get back to the markets and the Fed. Let's bring in Jonathan Gall, the chief U.S. equity strategist at Credit Suisse. And at one point, one of the biggest bulls on the street, mm -hmm. he joins us here on set. Jonathan, good to see you. Good to see you. Um, at one point, one of the biggest bulls. How about for 2018? Where do you stand? You know, I, I still think that we are in a trend of low double-digit um, returns until we start to see pressure on the Fed to really um, tighten, until we see inflationary pressure and wages go up. I think this is going to keep going on, so I continue to be pretty bullish. So at the Fed meeting this week with the, with the news conference afterwards, there's nothing in your view that will come out of it that will really jolt the market? You know, I, I was talking to our, our economists earlier, and what could the Fed say that would be a surprise? This thing is, is kind of baked in already. If they don't move, you have to wonder what are they possibly thinking they've conditioned us already. Guy, you were talking about before. And, and even if they signal that the economy is a bit stronger, we know that the economy is a bit stronger. So I think until we get further into the year, after the March meeting, after the June meeting, then we're going to wonder how much d damage they're going to do. The other thing is they're going to start to roll off this balance sheet. So to try to figure out, is it two meetings this year, is it three meetings? It's really this kind of mix of tightening that we're going to see from them and other central banks that later in next year we're going to start to have to figure out, but not, not this week. So where do yields go? Let's call it 10-year before the equity market gets concerned. Yes, we, we put out a report on this a couple of weeks ago that up until about 3.5%, the equity market it looks at the 10-year. Well, it used to be like up to like 5%, so it, it's, it's a much lower number. But at what, 2.4 or a little bit less on the 10-year, that means the next 100 basis points, the market is somewhere between positive or a shoulder shrug. You know, that, that's, that's a very good thing. 3.5%. Is there some scenario, and I know this, this may be sort of not the conventional view, which could spike rates to the upside very sharply? I mean, is that maybe what the market is underestimating, that you get tax, you get an infrastructure bill in January, that the Fed is pressured and the market overshoots on yields to the upside? I was really concerned about this tax bill, that it was going to put just too much pressure. We have a 4.1% unemployment rate. We're adding a ton of jobs. And you put pressure on that, you're going to get a wage problem at some point in time. For some reason, and you said before, nobody can fully understand why wages haven't gone up that much. 
Um, if you got an infrastructure plan next year, I'd still have the same concern. Maybe they're pushing this trade too hard. But for right now, we're, we're not there. But eventually, this, this thing is going to end with right. higher inflation. But it could be in 2020. Um, but it's definitely not in the next couple of quarters. All right, Jonathan, good to see you. We should note that Jonathan's favorite uh, sectors, banks and technology. Pete, what did you do today? Well, you know, today was a pretty active day once again for me as well. And I actually took off one of my banks, but I still continue to hold on to Citi and Bank of America, both in the stock and the options. So I still think the financials have upside. And I think the other interesting part of the, what we were seeing in the market is the tech side. We saw some massive, and I added to a Microsoft position that I already had on. I own stock and I own calls. I added more stock today. The call activity in there is telling me something about Microsoft and where its next direction is. So to Jonathan's point, technology, financials, I think they both lead in the first quarter of 2018. Today? Yeah, they could. I mean, so for me, I looked at the uh, TBT, which is being short treasuries, or if you're thinking that yields are going to go higher. And the reason I did that is you look at what's happening in oil. Oil looks like it wants to break even higher here, and I think that's going to put pressure on inflation. That's going to put pressure on the Fed, and yields go higher. And I've got some room at, you know, it acts as a hedge against my equity portfolio. Daniel. Yeah, I see what Pete sees in the mega cap tech. I just want to kind of carve out one sector, and that's the semis. And I know you like semiconductor stocks, but I was a little early on a SMH short. That's the ETF that tracks the semiconductor index. But the outperformance there and the reliance from a sentiment standpoint on some real high flyers kind of led me to believe that this is going to be a good short into year end, possibly into the start of the new year. So I added to the SMH. I just don't see the bounce in that sector right now. And you I added to the puts, you mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. On, on the bearish side, I added to it. And so to me, I can see why you could go into a Microsoft or some of these names right. that actually, you know, just have a little bit more valuation support, that sort of thing. So to me, you know, I think the semis is probably mid to low 90s in the next few weeks. Adobe sold off from an all-time high a couple weeks ago, 186 or so, down to below 170, probably on the back of weakness in Amazon. Amazon still feels like they got their footing back. So I think this trade sets up well in December 14th earnings to get long Adobe into that earnings release. All right, coming up, he is known as Bitcoin Jesus, both feared and revered in the cryptocurrency space. Roger Ver, the man who bought Bitcoin at a dollar, tells us where he sees it going next. Plus, while you've been transfixed by Bitcoin quietly, Tesla. Yeah, remember that stock? Well, it's been in the midst of an electric slide, but could it be about to make a big U-turn? We'll explain. And later, if you missed the rally this year, there's still time to make money. The Chartmasters got one group of Left for Dead stocks he says are about to surge. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla topping the tape today, soaring more than 4% as it revs out of bear market territory. But it hasn't exactly been smooth sailing for the stock. The electric car company is still down more than 15% from its recent highs. So is Tesla on the fast track to regaining those highs, Pete? You know, it's never been smooth sailing for Tesla. I mean, we all talk about it every single time it comes out there and we see these unbelievable moves, both up and down. And it was pushing towards 400, pulled back towards 300. You hit some great areas, Guy, where you talked about, hey, this potentially would be a buy area. I think Tesla is the most interesting of all these companies out there. And the reason I say that is we get caught up in so many different things. But Tesla, is it a car company or, or is it something else? Is it a software company? I continue to lean on the software with the hard, hardware side. So because of that, I think the valuation is completely different than everybody else. But that's why I still like the company. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we've said I think we've said it's really not a car company. They're getting themselves away. This product, this this the Model 3 ramp up is obviously part of this. They're with Jeffries the next couple days. So what did it do? BK nailed this double top back in September, around 385 or so. We said very good chance the stock prints 280. Got down to 292. 
think we said back then, close enough for government work. We also said now you got to buy the breakout above a close above 325. Well, close above 325 today. So now I think the next leg higher is well within our reach. They report, I think, in mid-February. So I think, you know, short of retesting that 320 level or so, I think Tesla goes higher. Uh, well, listen, yeah. here's the thing about your not a car company thing, guys. I mean, like, pretty soon when we start seeing, you know, kind of like mid-level electric cars being rolled out in mass from Detroit, this is how this company is going to be compared to. And I just think that no. you're going to have a hard time finding tech companies to compare it, it to at that point. Because you can't compare it. I mean, it's, it's more is than it like a car an company. Is it like an iPhone versus a, an Android phone, like a low-level Android phone? It's not even it's, that close no, of a comparison. I, mean, I, I don't think, I mean, the market is not all of a sudden going to start comparing this to GM. It hasn't in the past. It's not going to all of a sudden do it. I think you're wrong about that. Well, I, I think, think, you're I think wrong. The, the stock when, is sold when, off from 400 why, down I mean, to 300 because, because people are now it's no no about no, the mass come on. market. I mean, nobody's going to all of a sudden just decide it's a car company after several years of not calling it a car company. This is all about Elon Musk, and it's all about his vision. This is, who's the CEO of GM? There's no vision That's there. I'm really passionate about this. That's really well, good. I just and, and let me tell you something. I feel like you guys took a little hiatus, and you guys stopped trading the Tesla, and you went over the crypto stuff, and now you're a little passionate I'm passionate. about the Tesla again. Well, I'm passionate about making sure Talk people Tesla. know what's right. Yeah. Wow. And now we got to go to commercial. We but do. can I say there's a Friday show called Options Action, and Dan had a bearish trade in GM around $45. Yeah. It played out. Oh, you were on that nice. day. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, he remembers. Okay. Still ahead. Biotech stock Juno sinking today down more than 10%. What is shareholders running from this stock? The CEO will be here later this hour to tell us what he thinks the street is getting wrong. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Allison, can you explain what Internet is? Yeah, it wasn't so long ago we were asking basic questions about the World Wide Web. So we're going to take all your basic Bitcoin questions so you won't look silly in the future. So tweet us at CNBC Fast Money and we'll answer it live on air. Plus, he's the man who bought Bitcoin when it was $1. So what does he see now? Roger Beer, a.k.a. the Jesus of Bitcoin, joins us next, live from a beach. Yeah, he's a crypto baller, and he's going to make his boldest prediction yet on Bitcoin when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. In the beginning, humankind discovered how to make fire. Fast forward a million years and humankind appears to have stumbled upon the next great invention, Bitcoin futures. They launched on the CBOE at 6 p.m. last night, surged 20 percent today. So how did the crypto debut shake out? Bob Fasson is at the New York Stock Exchange with more. Hi, Bob. Hello, Melissa. It's been a long wait, but trading in Bitcoin futures finally has begun. The opening price on Sunday night, $15,000. Forget it. It immediately rocketed up, ending the day north of $18,000 late in the day. That's up about 20%. That's a premium to the cash price of about 5%. Now, the volume's been small today. There's about 4,000 contracts. That's around $70 million in notional value. But trading was orderly, and it's a start. So just a note on the difference between the spot and futures prices. The futures price based off the closing auction price of the Gemini Exchange. There's an auction held twice daily. In the morning and afternoon, the futures price based off that afternoon auction. So the futures price of Bitcoin Today, in the middle of the day, was north of $18,000 toward the close. That was up about 20% from the Sunday afternoon auction price of 
15,000 and change. A little confusing, but that's how it works. So what's next? More participation, more volume in the futures contract will go a long way toward making Bitcoin a little more respectable. And that's good news. More participation will likely tamp down some of the volatility and will also introduce an element that we haven't really seen yet. Short sellers, potentially. So here's the bottom line. It's early yet, and while Bitcoin itself is still unregulated, the appearance of a futures market at least is going some way toward making the cryptocurrency at least a little more transparent. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob Bassani, thank you so much. So if you wanted to buy Bitcoin futures, how should you do it? Our resident crypto expert, BK, is at the plasma breaking down a simple strategy with the more you know. The more you know, absolutely. So futures actually are fairly simple instruments. I actually find them a little simpler than options action. I'm not as smart as those guys at 530 on Friday. So let's talk about what you do with Bitcoin futures or how to trade futures in general. First of all, like any other trade, you want to identify your key levels. Number two, the thing with futures is you're going to have high risk, high return, high risk, high reward. You're going to have leverage in this particular case. In futures, it's about 44% on the CBOE, so you have to put up roughly half of what you're doing. And then you always, always want to use a stop and have a stop out level. Because futures can move so fast, because you're leveled, you want to make sure you protect yourself. So let's go to the next, next one here. Let's take a look at this trade. This is a trade I put together today, okay, looking at the Bitcoin futures, up about 20% overnight. I know some people thought Bitcoin was going to get annihilated. Apparently, they meant annihilated up because it went up 20%. Here's what it looks like. You have this nice range right here. So we want to use that as our protective stop area. So if I look at futures here, okay, my stop is at 1730. That's just below this range here. I'm going to buy the futures at 1790. My target is 2180. And you might say, BK, you're crazy. That's okay, because 2800 is 3800 points, which is exactly the measured move that we had overnight. So we put up about $5,000, actually about uh, eight dollars or $9,000. Okay, we have a risk of $500. If we drop down to $1,730, we are going to lose $500. But if we go up to $2,180, then we are going to make $3,800. So that risk-reward is much greater than three to one, which I always look for. And the one thing I'd say about these particular contracts, it's one for one. So if you buy one contract, it's the same thing as buying or just like buying one Bitcoin. And that's how you trade futures. That was sharp, BK. Let me ask you a quick question for one of those OA guys you were just dissing earlier. Uh, here's the thing with futures, you know, equity investors oftentimes um, after hours will trade futures against stock holdings. For instance, let's say you're long a basket of stocks and there's some news out um, and then you may short some futures to kind of lower your delta exposure. Do you expect uh, these futures to be used that way um, or is it because you know, cryptocurrencies trade 24-7 that it'll be less of an impact because these markets are all trading? No, I think as the market matures, you will see some more of those more sophisticated strategies. So one thing you can do is if you're long Bitcoin and you have it in, in a cold storage device, you can sell futures against this and you can pick up a little bit of yield. So you almost make Bitcoin a yielding instrument. Today, first day, a lot of players weren't up and running. A lot of brokers weren't offering this product. So it's going to take a little time to get that liquidity out there. But I do think people will use these for much more sophisticated strategies. And one more quick question, BK. A lot of institutions, because of their mandates, aren't allowed to own the cryptocurrencies themselves, are they allowed to trade futures? Yes, they are. And that's why I think this is the first step towards a whole bunch of institutional money coming in. If you're already trading currency futures or oil futures or copper futures, you can trade Bitcoin futures the same way. All right. Well, as you all know out there, it is Bitcoin week mm. here on Fast Money. Kicking it off is none other than the Bitcoin Jesus himself, 
Roger Ver. Now, back in 2011, he bought $25,000 worth of Bitcoin when it was trading at just a dollar a coin and became one of the first big proponents for the cryptocurrency, hence the name Bitcoin Jesus. Fast forward to today, and that original investment is now worth roughly $425 million. Ver now runs Bitcoin.com, an online platform from storing uh, digital currencies. He joins us on the fast line from a beach. Why a beach? Because he can. Roger is the original crypto baller. Roger, great to have you with us on Fast Money. Thank you so much. I feel like we should call it fast cryptocurrencies. <laughs> um, Roger, I, I want to get your views on Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. I know you prefer Bitcoin Cash, but first of all, for Bitcoin, because that's what most of our retail viewers are trading these days, what's your view on, on where this asset could go? Well, I, I think lots of people are, are excited and, and they have this fear of missing out. So they're piling in and uh, just don't be the last one holding the bag. But the reason I became the first investor in the entire world to start investing in Bitcoin startups is because it allowed you to send and receive any amount of money with anyone else anywhere in the world instantly, basically for free, and there is nothing anybody could do to stop it. Bitcoin Cash still has all those properties. Today, Bitcoin, if you want to send money to somebody, costs tens or even hundreds of dollars uh, per transaction. So if you're trading oil or copper or gold futures, all of those things have some utility. Whereas Bitcoin, uh, at this point, I'm really, really, really concerned about uh, the future of Bitcoin because uh, a group of developers have gotten in charge of it, and they openly say that they wanted to have high fees and slow and unreliable transactions. And if that's the case, guess what? People aren't going to use it. And that's the CEO of Bitcoin.com. We switched all of our infrastructure over to supporting Bitcoin Cash. We're going to cross 1 million Bitcoin Cash wallets here in the next 24 hours. Uh, it's a really, really exciting time. So if you feel like you missed out on Bitcoin back in 2011, take a look at Bitcoin Cash. Uh, give it you know, a use. Uh, I think you'll be really, really impressed with uh, the usefulness because it has the same economic formula that led Bitcoin to be this worldwide phenomenon as it is today. But Bitcoin Core, the one that's being traded on the futures market today, no longer has those characteristics. So whereas Bitcoin Cash does. So as, as much as Bitcoin has soared, you think Bitcoin Cash has even more upside? Absolutely. Bitcoin Cash actually has utility. You can actually use it to pay in people around the world, and you can do it for less than a penny. I can send a million dollars from the beach here in St. Kitts to you in snowy New York, and it costs less than a penny, and you receive it on your phone instantly. If I tried to do the same thing with Bitcoin Core, it would probably cost 50 or or $100, and it might not show up for hours, days, or even weeks. Uh, so... There's a real uh, difference in the amount of utility between the two. And if you're looking at a cryptocurrency, that means it's used for payments. It's clearly Bitcoin Cash. It's not Bitcoin so Core. If, if Bitcoin has less utility than Bitcoin Cash and you're concerned about Bitcoin, does that mean that you think the price of Bitcoin will go down? Or do, the, do both go up, you know, in, in tandem with maybe more upside on Bitcoin Cash? I think that there's definitely more upside in Bitcoin Cash in the long term. But in the short run, you know, people are going crazy over Bitcoin Core at the moment. But... Uh, I'm in this for the long run. I want to see the entire world have a, a form of money that they can use and not require permission from banks or governments or anybody at all. And that's clearly the vision for Bitcoin Cash. That's clearly not the vision of Bitcoin Core at this point. So I've actually sold the majority of my own Bitcoin Core coins for Bitcoin Cash. And uh, very, very uh, pleased with that. Uh, it's up, what, 400% in the last couple of weeks. Um, and Bitcoin.com, the world's uh, one of the top websites in the entire world for Bitcoin-related things, is fully supporting Bitcoin Cash. So... Uh, if you really want to get at the ground floor, I would uh, spend some time looking to Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin.com has all the information. And in my book, Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. Hey, Roger, it's BK. Uh, glad to have you on here. So I'm curious, is, in your, is there a world that you can see where both Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash exist together, where Bitcoin Cash maybe is that transactional currency and Bitcoin Core, as you're calling it, is just the digital gold? 
Well, actual physical gold is traded and is used as a store value because it has all sorts of other use cases. It's used in electronics. It's used in industry. It's used in jewelry. And it's because it has those secondary use cases that people feel safe using it as a store of value, whereas Bitcoin Core at the moment doesn't really have any other use cases other than being a store of value. And if that's the only use case, I don't think people are going to continue to use that. They're going to use a digital currency that you can also use to buy things, uh, you know, buy your, your coffee at Starbucks, for example. So I just want to underscore this, Roger. Where do you see in the long run Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin going? So um, I think in the short run it can go up a lot more, but mm-hmm. uh, if it continues to have these high, you know, tens or even hundreds of dollars in fees and slow, unreliable transactions, which is what the developers that managed to seize control of the Bitcoin Core project have managed to do, uh, guess what? If things cost uh, are super expensive and unreliable, people are going to use something else. And I think that's something else that they're going to use is Bitcoin Cash. And once Bitcoin Cash surpasses Bitcoin Core in terms of market cap and price and people using it around the world, people are just going to call it Bitcoin. And not too much, long, uh, much longer after that, they're just going to call it cash because it's going to be the cash for the entire world. So Bitcoin's days are numbered, it sounds like you're almost saying. Um, I'm really pessimistic on the long-term future of Bitcoin because you can do an experiment. Get a free Bitcoin wallet from Bitcoin.com. It has both a Bitcoin Core and a Bitcoin Cash wallet. Uh, have someone send you $20 in Bitcoin Cash and send it back to them. They'll get the entire $20 back. If they send you $20 of Bitcoin Core, it'll cost them an additional $50 to send it. And you probably won't even be able to send it back to them because the entire amount will be uh, used up in fees. So Bitcoin Core is basically like digital gold. Mm-hmm. It crumbles into nothingness every time you try and use it. Obviously, it took a lot of conviction and it took a lot of um, uh, prescience to invest in Bitcoin at a buck a piece uh, six years ago. Do you feel more conviction about Bitcoin Cash today than you did about Bitcoin six years ago? Um, I'm more convinced that Bitcoin Core, if it continues to have high fees and unreliable transactions, it's not a currency. It's no longer a cryptocurrency. It's just a, a game of hot potato at that point. And games of hot potatoes can go on for a long time, and lots of people can pump a lot of money into it. And it might go on for, for even decades. But as far as it being used as a money, uh, the, the developers behind it have destroyed that at this point. So I think it's Bitcoin Cash. And there's a 1,001 other competitors out there as well. There's Monero, there's Zcash, there's Zcoin. There's a whole bunch of them out there. Um, that are all vying to be used as currency around the world. And if you don't offer your customers the best product with the best user experience at the lowest uh, cost, uh, they're going to go somewhere else. And that's exactly what's happening with Bitcoin. We've watched Bitcoin in the last six months go from nearly 100% uh, market share in the cryptocurrency space to now down around 50% market share. And that's as a direct result of it having a bad user experience and having a development team that openly say they want it to have a bad user experience. So, uh, it pains me as being the world's first investor in Bitcoin, uh, start Bitcoin startups, to say these bad things about Bitcoin. But the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is the utility of Bitcoin has been damaged severely by these people, but that utility still exists in Bitcoin Cash. It's an absolute uh, right. joy to my face every time I use Bitcoin Cash. Roger, a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much, and we hope you'll join us again. Roger Ver, the CEO of Bitcoin.com. Same question uh, to you. Would you rather today Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin? I think if I had to make the choice, I own both, but if I had to make the choice, I like Bitcoin Cash because I think the market's bigger. So if you do the math that Roger's talking about, gold, $9 trillion market cap, if that's what Bitcoin wants to get to, fantastic, I'll be happy. But Bitcoin Cash is going after global M1 or the cash market effectively. Mm -hmm. That's a $100 trillion market. So much bigger market share. 
Yeah, I would just add, I mean, listen, I'm not an expert on this sort of stuff, but just as a speculator who's kind of been looking at this stuff, I mean, obviously Bitcoin has had this amazing run. A lot of the positive sentiment has been focused on Bitcoin. So when you hear someone like him, who was an early evangelist, kind of say this is a $23 billion market cap for Bitcoin Cash, I'd probably go Bitcoin Cash at this point. Still ahead, is the crypto craze making your head spin? You're not alone. And to help make sense of it all, we're taking your Bitcoin questions later in the show. We're talking about the embarrassing ones you're too afraid to ask at the dinner table. So just send us a tweet to at CNBC Fast Money Plus. Want to play catch up in the market? Well, the chart master, Carter Worth, is one lagging stock that he says could be about to break out. He'll give us the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. As we head into year-end, the market is surging into record highs, and there are some left-for-dead stocks that are finally starting to join the party. Let's get to a man who's always the life of the party, Dom Chu in the newsroom. Hey, Dom. <laughs> well, you, you might be partying if you were lucky enough to do a little market timing, Melissa. So, so we wanted to take a look for who could fit the bill as a possible second-half comeback story. The stocks who've been maybe beaten up a little bit, but managed to get back towards highs of the year. So we did a little screening. We looked at Russell 1000 stocks that are currently trading within 3% of their 52-week high. After hitting a 52-week low sometime after June 30th this year. So our search got down to around 40 stocks. The list is populated by a lot of energy, retail, and financial-related names that have managed to put together some real positive momentum just as of late. Among the more well-known names in that list, you've got integrated oil giant Chevron, which after hitting a 52-week low back on July 11th, has rallied around 17% since then. Then there's Nike, which just did it. I mean, hit a 52-week low just a couple months back on October 12th. Since then, it's up around 22%. And then who's in the mood to do some bulk Christmas shopping? Costco hit its own low for the year on July 21st and then has rallied around 26% since then. Melissa, the dip buying definitely worked here, but will it last in 2018? Time will tell. Back over to you guys. All right. Thanks so much, Dom Chu. So are these stocks trades or traps? Let's start off with Chevron. Pete. You know, right now I'd have to go with trap. I, I, I don't want to chase after Chevron just because I agree with Mark Fisher and I think that oil is in a different, you know, it's in, in a very tight range. I think there are better opportunities out there, though. Would you say it's a trade? Oh, I, no, I think it's a trade. Okay. I mean, it, let, let's take a, take a look. Do yourself a favor, pull up a weekly chart, longer-term chart. Looks like you might be having a double top here, but we've broken through, mm. and there's a reason why they don't write about triple tops in technical analysis books. Anybody think uh, Nike's a trade? I own trapped? it. I think. <laughs> okay, Pete. Well, I own it, and I bought it after earnings. And the reason I did was I thought everybody misinterpreted the earnings. I think this last earnings cycle gave so many opportunities on stocks where if you're looking in the right spot, it's the right trade. And Nike, when you look at the growth internationally, which is what I think they're focused on, it's where the revenues come from, that's why I like Nike. Held $50 for about six or seven months, bounced off that a number of times. Now I think it's headed towards, and we've said this, the old highs. I think in 2015 it traded north of 67. I think that's where Nike's headed now. So if that's a trade, that's a trade. Costco? Uh, I think it's a trap. You know, I think you have to look back to a few months ago when they reported their last quarter. They saw declining margins. They saw increased costs uh, doing same-day delivery. Amazon Prime is really coming at their membership model. This stock traded at 155 after their earnings last quarter. So to me, they report on Thursday afternoon. This is one that I have a bearish view on, and I'm targeting 175 over the next few weeks. All right. Speaking of comeback trades, our next guest says there's one underperforming big pharma stock. That's poised for a breakout. Chartmaster Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macro. Over at the plasma to break it all down. Hi, Carter. Hi there. So this is a story about Merck. Uh, let's look at some top-down charts and then get to Merck itself. 
three lines. This goes back to the inception of Standard & Poor's current sector uh, nomenclature in 1989. What we have on the bottom is Merck, and we know that Merck is a subset of S&P 500 pharmaceuticals, which in turn is a subset of all S&P 500 healthcare. So it's a very clear dragging, which of course is a little bit better, but they're both dragging the entire sector. One stock, pharmaceuticals, the whole sector. Let's keep going. All right. So the sector itself has this sub-industry group, or pharmaceuticals. It's nine stocks, one trillion, representing almost 5% of the S&P. Here are the top three names. They collectively are about 70%. You know the names. I want to talk about Merck, because it's really lagged. The group is lagged, uh, but Merck has really lagged. I think perhaps we've got an opportunity for a catch-up. This is, again, the entire S&P of healthcare sector and pharmaceuticals relative to the S&P healthcare, meaning even as you've gone up, you're going down relative. Let's take this back a little further. This is over the last five years, same circumstance. It's all about relative performance. The pharmaceuticals are not performing. And then finally, take a look at all data going back to 1990. It is literally making new lows. So even as it goes up and makes highs, you're not generating alpha as a portfolio manager. Let's talk about Merck. Okay, here is the current one-year chart. S&P on top, Merck on the bottom. That's a hell of a spread, 18 versus down nine. Let's do the five-year chart. Same thing. This is getting pretty extreme. Now let's drill down on Merck. Merck, it has bounced off this trend line once, twice, three times, four times. I think you're going to get the bounce again. I want to play for that. Let's do the short-term chart. Here's our drop, well-defined lows, a plunge, and I think what we've got is a little minor head and shoulders bottom, and I want to play for a retracement of these gaps. A big laggard, I think you get 60 bucks out of it, closed around 54 today. All right, thank you very much, thank Carter. You. Unfortunately, we're tied on time, so we can't bring you back. What? Today. I know, oh. it's so unusual, but we still love so, you. You have a place in the Pantheon or the Parthenon or whatever you want to call it. So um, <laughs> Number one. Thank you very much, Carter. All right, so Merck, Big Pharma. Come back. So, well, it had a great beginning of the year, if you look. So I'll answer your question. Yes, it'll have a comeback, I think. They pulled their application for European Keytruda, right? And then stock went down 14% like that. But you know what? They have another study in progress with Keytruda for another application that if it gets through, they'll reapply for Europe, which could mean big things for Merck in the first half of 2018. Roundabout way of saying I think it will have a comeback, yeah. You know, I own this stock, and I own it for the reasons you're talking about, basically the pipeline. But also, I like the management. And because of that, the one thing that I, that I struggle with all the time with Merck is when I look at the P.E., it seems pretty hefty, right? So because of that, that bothers me. But I agree with Carter, and I like his charts. I think this thing's going higher. All right. Still ahead, confused about the crypto craze? Get those phones out and head to our Twitter at CNBC Fast Money because BK here, he's answering all your burning Bitcoin questions. Plus, Geno Therapeutics sinking 14% today. What's got investors hitting the sell button? CNBC's Meg Terrell is standing by with the CEO. Meg? Hey, Mel, it's down 14% today, but Juno is up triple digits for the year, giving it the moniker, the comeback kid in a certain form of cancer treatment. We bring you the CEO to talk about what's driving the business and the investor's reaction today. Back after this. Welcome back to Fast Money, a biotech bonanza happening in Atlanta at one of the most important events for the space of the year. Our own Meg Terrell's at the Ash Conference. She's with the CEO of Juno Therapeutics. That stock is down 14% today after a big run-up this year. Meg, take it away. 
Melissa, thank you so much. And Hans Bishop, thanks for being here. Pleasure, Meg. So you've had a huge run-up this year, but today it's stock down 14% on what analysts are generally calling a pretty good update uh, in your cancer program. Tell us about the data and why you think investors are reacting like this. Well, difficult to know what you know one-day stocks moves are all about, but the data we're super excited about. Um, we think it points to JCAR 17 being best in class. If you think about what doctors want in these treatment refractory patients, they want good efficacy and good tolerability. And we're showing that we're getting 68% of patients, we're getting rid of their cancer at three months and it's 50% at six months. And the tolerability profile looks equally encouraging. You know, the two most common side effects associated with CARs, we're showing actually quite low rates. So we're very pleased. And about that run-up in your stock this year, of course, you see a big jump when you look at your year-to-date chart. Around the time your competitor, Kite, was acquired by Gilead, a lot of people speculate that with potential tax reform, your partner, Celgene, or maybe someone else, could use their overseas cash to buy you. How do you look at the future of Juno as a standalone company? Oh, we focus on execution and science. That's, you know, what's in our control is getting Lysocell or JCAR 17 approved. We're moving into the clinic early next year with... Uh, a car directed at BCMA, it's called JCARH125. We've got a broad program of CAR T-cells and TCRs looking at solid tumours and we're looking forward to reporting data from those programs over next year. So that's the focus of everyone that works at the company. As you get closer to the market, and two of your competitors are already on the market having set prices of uh, around $400,000 a year for their drugs, do you see that as a good paradigm for where you might potentially think about pricing? I think it's too early for us to say. You know, what we need in our hand is the data on which the drug will be approved. We've got to think about value for the system. One thing that we think is really important about JCAR 17 is this low side effect profile and, and the timing at which the side effects develop, we think will allow us to give this drug in the outpatient setting. So outside the hospital rather outside than Outside the hospital. You know, th these patients, many of which have had a lot of chemotherapy, you, you don't want them to be in a hospital because of the risk of infection unless they need to be. So if we can give this drug in the outpatient setting, it's going to be good for patients. It will clearly be also good for the hospital resources and good for payers. And I think that's a really important opportunity yeah. with respect to the value of JCAR 17. A lot more to discuss there. We'll have to leave it there for now, Hans. Thank I you so much. You. Thank you. All right, Mel, back over to you guys. All right, thank you. Meg Terrell with Hans Bishop, the CEO of Geno Therapeutics. What do you see on Geno? I can understand. I st I'm still bullish in the stock. The stock's still a double from when we started talking about it, I think, in the spring. Listen, their cash position's now north of a billion dollars. Their cash burn continues to go down. That's a good thing, and the science works. I understand why the market sold it off. They were concerned about some adverse effects, let's just say, but I think they're missing the boat. The science behind these companies is intact, and I think all these stocks continue to go higher. How about you, Pete? Where do you see on this? Are you, have you been in or out of Juno? I have not been in Juno. Gilead, we talked about, but yeah. that, after that big buyout, they actually moved to the upside significantly. So uh, right now, not in any biotechs. They had a great year, 20% or 40%, whether it's the XBI or the IBB, but right now, no biotechs for me. All right, let's stick with biotech. One trader's betting on pain ahead for the entire group. So, Dan, what'd you see? Yeah, so it wasn't just Juno that was down a lot after uh, data at this ass conference. There's a bunch of others, but right after the open today, um, options volume was running pretty hot in the IBB. That's the NASDAQ uh, biotech 
ETF, about two times average daily volume. There was one trade in January expiration in the IBB where a trader bought 3,500 of the January 105, uh, 96.67 put spreads. It's about $600,000 in premium. It breaks even down at 103.30. We have a chart here. I just think that this is likely protection, maybe against a basket of biotech stocks. Look at this one-year chart. Look at how it held that uptrend. Not too different than what Carter was showing in Merck, but look where that one tra- uh, the, uh, the uptrend is. It's at that break-even point on that put spread. So maybe just a little near-term protection in a space that's getting a little volatile. For more options action, check out the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, got a question about Bitcoin that you're too embarrassed to ask. Now is your chance. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We'll tell you everything you need to know. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We want to alert you to an SEC statement that was just published from SEC Chairman Jay Clayton about cryptocurrencies as well as ICOs or initial coin offerings. It's a pretty long statement, but the conclusion of it is that the SEC is committed to promoting capital formation. The technology may in fact prove to be disruptive, um, but that the SEC encourages Main Street investors to be open to the opportunities and ask good questions, demand clear answers and apply good common sense when doing so. Um, so you can go onto the SEC website, sec.gov, to read the full statement. But BK, we did see a little bit of movement in Bitcoin yeah. spot. You saw Bitcoin you spot a little bit state. and Bitcoin futures come down a little bit, which is interesting because I view this as relatively bullish. I know we've talked a little bit about Ethereum. What he's talking about in this particular case are the initial coin offerings, which are generally done with Ethereum. So maybe investors here are taking a little bit of Bitcoin off and buying a little bit of Ethereum. All right. Um, we, in the meantime, are taking your Bitcoin tweets tonight because it is Bitcoin week here on Fast Money. Our first guest asks, is Bitcoin a good investment tool? I'm trying to get rid of traditional stocks to get half a Bitcoin. BK. Uh, so, listen, it, it is a good investment tool, but it's also highly risky. So, you know, I always say one to five percent of your portfolio, put it in digital currencies. All right. Good advice. Up next, final trade. Welcome back to Fast. Uh, Surprise, we got time for one more tweet about Mm. Bitcoin. Our viewer Jeffrey asks, is Bitcoin a currency or a commodity? Brian Kelly, what do you say? Uh, Great question, Jeffrey. Hard to answer, but I'm going to go with commodity. Uh, It is a little too volatile at this point to be used as a transactional currency. Maybe the futures come in, we get a little of that volatility tamping down, and it becomes more of a currency transactional type of thing. But for today, think of it as digital gold. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Pete. You know, there are some some unbelievably volatile currencies out there as well. I'm going with Microsoft. Giddy up. This thing's going way <laughs> higher. Woo-hoo. Speakers? Uh, you know what? I'm going to go with the Apple. I think that uh, n- news with Shazam today is bigger than people are uh, thinking. That's mm-hmm. laughable. Daniel? Laughable. I mean, you killed it on the Bitcoin stuff, but that the Shazam's laughable. No, he's right because right. it went up. Okay, great. So let's not worry Costco. about it. I think you could probably uh-huh. take profits into earnings on Thursday. I thought Meg's interview was great. Could have lasted a little bit longer. With that said, I think the sell-off in Juno was too much. So I would say Juno. Wow. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow again at 5 for more Fast and more Bitcoin Week. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.